Welcome to Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. My name is Huai Chen Bui. I'm a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in New York, currently uh, quarantining in D.C. And I'm joined by my two co-hosts. I am Anya Crittenden, a writer and editor in Los Angeles. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker also in the D.C. area. So we are going back to Titanic. We were talk. We talked briefly on the podcast last last week about Titanic in terms of like great movies that won a bunch of Oscars and and sort of our small talk about Lord of the Rings. Um, and we were just like, what do we want to talk about? And we were like, why don't we just keep going with that Titanic conversation? Because we're all, I I would say, pretty big Titanic fans. Mm-hmm. Um, Titanics. You know, it has been 84 years since the movie came out. Uh, don't fact check me on that. And we just want to, like, you know, sort of do what we do for movie reviews because there are no movies. Movies have been canceled, as we've talked about. Right. Um, this and would so be gonna, the usual I mean, day of our millennial monthly millennial movie review. But since uh, there haven't really been any new movies out, theatrical releases at, at least. Right. I mean, like. Movies like movies that were supposed to get theatrical releases have gotten digital download releases like Trolls World Tour. But I don't think any of us would vote to watch Trolls World Tour unless given like a free review pass. So um, I believe we're all going to. Yeah, we were just going to we're just we're going to do a throwback um, and talk about one of the most influential movies of the 90s, if not the 21st century. Um and we'll we'll kind of structure it like we do with our normal movie reviews, where we'll sort of talk about our our initial thoughts, or I guess our you know sort of twenty three year old thoughts on the movie, um, and then to, you know go into the plot of Titanic. Spoiler alert: it sank. Um, and also like characters and themes. Uh, there's there's you know this movie's got everything like we talked about last week. Um, so why don't I start it off with? Uh, HT, why don't you, or Anya? Who wants to go first? Who wants to go first? Anyone? Sure, I'll go first. Okay. You know, every night in my dreams, I think of Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) I see it. I hear it. How did I know that this is what this episode would be? (laughs) And yet, I'm still disappointed. (laughs) Somehow. (laughs) Well, I guess not every night in my dreams, but I do think a lot about Celine Dion, uh, who is just a a international treasure because she's not national she's canadian but we love her dearly um but she is a bananas international treasure have we ever talked about just like how crazy celine dion is because she is and i love her for it we haven't talked about this like she's insane and i love her please go into more detail anya i'll just like watch any interview with her like she is bananas like she's just like she'll just she just talks about the most random things and like goes off on she's just hilarious and <laughs> like so crazy and i love her so much she's like our crazy white canadian aunt oh my gosh i actually I had no her. idea i just know her by oh my god please songstress. watch like interviews with her she's hilarious all right i'm gonna check that out next um but yes titanic a movie i dearly adore um when i grew up i had a one of those two-part vhs tapes of it because it's such a long movie that it has an intermission and i actually miss intermissions these days like what we should bring back the intermission, especially with movies becoming three plus hours long um, 
nowadays. So I loved that Hateful Eight had an intermission. I thought yeah. that was like so great. I it felt like we were watching a play. Yeah, it fit so well with the movie itself too, which was filmed in that like seventy millimeter huge widescreen, and it was just so epic and momentous that it felt like it fit that intermission sort of structure. And I love the intermission of Titanic too. It, it really perfectly. Um, cuts in half the two very kind of different movies that Titanic is, which is the epic romance slash uh, story about class tension and and uh, division and the blockbuster disaster movie. And both of those two parts is why Titanic is such a great film that astonishes me every time I watch it. Um, of course, I didn't think about any of these things when I was first watching Titanic. In fact, Upon watching it again as an adult, I realized I had missed a significant portion of Titanic because my parents, whenever I would watch Titanic with them, would make me close my eyes during the scene where Jack and Rose have sex in the car for the first time. So I, I think... Mean- Makes sense. Like, it makes sense. And I remember watching it again, well, maybe not as an adult, maybe as a teenager, and um, I was watching it by myself with my two-part VHS thing as a sort of nostalgia, nostalgic reliving of one of my favorite movies as a kid and being like, huh, I don't remember this part of the movie. But every time I rewatch it, it just it holds up so well. The performances uh, by young Leonardo DiCaprio, who just is just so that boy's floppy haired beautiful he's like at the pinnacle of his floppy haired 90s dreamboat it is it is really it's so beautiful for him i'm not gonna say it's been downhill for him since then i would say it's probably been downhill for him since like aviator catch me if you can years Mm -hmm. yeah i mean titanic really was the tip of the iceberg for his career oh willoughby yeah oh why why is my phone making noise One thing I think is really funny, this is, I'm sure, um, a fact that we'll bring up later, but is that um, Leonardo DiCaprio apparently originally wanted his character to have a limp because he was very keen with being taken as a serious actor. Um, He's already uh, done Gilbert Grape. That's like... That that would have been terrible. I know. (laughs) And James Cameron was like, no, we're not doing, we're not giving you a limp. Okay, so James Cameron has done at least one good thing in his life. (laughs) Just be your perfect matinee idol self. And I think that's a lot of what makes Titanic so great is that it feels so cinematic in that old-fashioned way where it has the star power of its two stars, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, just being their most star-powered and charismatic and beautiful and glamorous, and yet and having that really intense uh, chemistry that still resonates to this day. And in addition to that, building upon that with like the the story of class divisions as well as the blockbuster um, aspects makes it such a great onion of a movie. And I watched it again recently with a bunch of friends who had never seen Titanic before. And I think they came in, you know, expecting it to be this big spectacle and this big epic romance because that's what's gone down as, but they didn't really expect the second half of the film to be as action-packed and as intense and, se- and as like perfectly constructed as it is because um, this was a bunch of guys I'm just gonna say that like they were like oh just yeah there's gonna be a- being dudes watching Titanic <laughs> yeah there's like we're just watching a bunch of dudes who are like oh yeah it's a romance whatever we'll, we'll humor our girlfriends and they when we got to the second half they were just so um like their their jaws dropped and they were just like so 
um, focused on the screen, like their attentions were grabbed, and it was just really that great is the to correct see. Correct response, exactly. Yeah, and it was just so great to see like ass. that response to it, and to watch it again and just be like, this movie All really. Three does... hours of the movie with that. Yeah, it's just such a great, great movie that deserves its place at the top of the box office. Um, it's a crowd pleaser, but you know, crowd pleasers don't have to be just surface level entertaining movies. Like nothing is bad about being entertaining either. So that's, I guess, my long spiel about why Titanic is great and my little bit of history to it. I will say they gave us a lot of fan service um, in the back half of the movie, but I think that ultimately the nostalgia factor for it uh, really uh, hyped. I'm just joking. I don't know. I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm trying to calculate my thoughts for uh, IP-driven franchises with Titanic, and it's just, it's just. <laughs> I see what you're doing there. Yeah. On my, on your left. I don't know. <laughs> I, no, that game. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think that movie is perfect mm-hmm. uh, in in those ways. And I, but like, it's just sort of funny that like this movie, which is like, even though it's based on a historical, uh, uh, historical event. Uh, it is a quote-unquote original movie, um, and it, it was the biggest hit of forever, for, for a long time, until the next um, original hit, also by James Cameron. Um, and it only, it took a t- 10-year, 20-film lead-up to knock an original movie off the top of the box office. Um, yeah, cinema's different now. I mean, it's really different now, but it like, is. in before, like, pre-pandemic, it's different now. In the before times. <laughs> Huh. So Willoughby, what uh, were your what was your history with Titanic, and what were was your initial sort of reaction and um, thoughts about it? Um, I'd say I didn't actually see the movie until maybe ten or eleven years ago. Like, it, I think maybe I watched it on like a Netflix DVD, uh, like rental um, in high school. I, I want to say, but um, I I always liked it. Um, but then as I sort of grew into as a film student in college and like it was on Netflix instant and it was sort of available to, to watch more re- uh, readily, like I, you know, like even though you're a college student, like you're busy all the time, like I still had three, three hours to spare to watch Titanic. And I really sort of fell in love with the movie as a as a as a movie, as like a piece of cinema history, as like what it what it represents a larger than just like James Cam- James Cameron's latest movie like Titanic really like it's sort of amazing how many moments in this movie are like without a doubt iconic um and even though they've been parodied a bunch of times and homaged and referenced like the the scene where there where Kate Winslet is you know opening up her arms at the at the front of the ship like it still sort of works really well I think that it's even though it's super romantic and schmaltzy and like but like that's the that's like what this story is like, like there's no way around it like it is a super romantic movie in that way um and so like and it is an iconic image just you know it, and so i think that th- this movie is about as much about the story of the titanic sh- uh sinking as it is about like visual filmmaking because i think that there's a lot of uh, stunning visual moments in this movie uh, like the the scene where it's a wide shot of this, the boat sinking and you just see a flare shoot up and like like it's a super wide shot and you just see how alone they all are and you just sort of like it sticks with you um and so like over time i've grown to appreciate the movie for what it is and i definitely think like 
I was never like ew romance when I was at the, at the point of watching this movie, um, because I was like you know a teenager older so so I was like oh this is fun this is like a cute I love like the romance of like let's do a historical fiction where like it doesn't change history but it also like it could be real you we, you know we just don't know about it because of this you know stories were to- were told yet so like I love historical fiction stuff like that. Um, and so I think it really works with that. And then like, yeah, once the expert hits, it becomes a disaster movie and it also works really well. I think both halves of the film complement each other as well as stand out from each other because they are like, you can almost tell by the color palette how different the movies are. Cause like, it's all like orange glows and like, you know, golden hour and like all that. And then er everything after the iceberg is all like cold and moonlit and you know dark and and blue and and like you know looking at the movie do you guys ever on tumblr and like on the internet see those like film barcode uh, uh yes art? i love those the color schemes they're, of they're the... so cool yeah. i actually bought a version uh one for finding emo because uh, it's melissa's favorite film um and so like it's really cool to like see every you know like the, a movie condensed down to a barcode and Titanic, you could see the difference between like the two halves of the movie. Um, so I think that I, I just think it's a really, really good movie. Uh, I really like it. Um, and yeah, so I'm expecting this to go an hour and a half and then we'll cut and then we'll put the next hour and a half on another podcast and then we'll release those as VHS tapes uh, and uh, we'll sell that for money. Uh, Anya, what are your thoughts on Titanic? Yes. Um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement here. Maybe you guys will argue with me. I don't know. I think of the three of us, I am the biggest Titanic fan. Well, I would like to, I'd like to hear uh, your, your argument in defense of this. Okay. Um, I don't think I realized how much I love Titanic actually until this week when we started talking about it. And then I realized how well I knew this movie and how much it influenced me growing up. And I, like, not only can I remember, like, scenes and lines exactly, but, like, I can remember just, like, the tiniest details and the tiniest visuals and, like, the little sounds. Like, I just realized this week that, like, I feel like I have this whole memory just, like, imprinted on my brain. Um... I've seen this movie probably more times than I can count. I saw it for the first time as a kid. Um, and I don't even know how, like, I've seen it as many times as I have. I've never, like, sought it out. I just always happen to, like, well, go back to it. I mean, we, we do have to go back to Titanic all the time. But it's also on TBS, like, every three or four that's months. True. So, like, that's it is true. on television a lot. And that's how I watched a lot, like, bits and pieces of it. I just love yeah. that. Titanic is a three and a half, three hour and 15 minute movie with credits um, and putting that on cable television will extend that to a five hour runtime. Correct. Got to um, out those blocks somehow. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I just, I love this movie. Like I unabashedly love what this movie is. Um, I think it's James Cameron's best movie. Um, his only truly great movie, I would actually argue. Um, however, it's an objectively bad script. Titanic is a bad script. Um, beautifully directed, terrible script. However, the cast sells it and the grandiosity of it all 
makes you kind of like gloss over the fact that it's like an actually a bad script. But you have people like Kathy Bates and Victor Garber and Billy Zane who are doing such amazing work, even beyond Leo and Kate, that you don't always think about how bad of a script this movie really is. Um, And yet, despite it being bad, I still quote it all the time. Um, My favorite quote in this movie, and I say this with more frequency than I probably should, because it has, like, no relevance to any regular conversation, but I am constantly, constantly saying, I put the diamond in the coat. Oh, my God, yeah. And I put the coat on her. Billy Zane. Billy Zane has the best line readings in this movie. He plays Cal. He plays for people who may not have seen the movie a long time. He plays the 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 fiance to 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 Rose to Kate Winslet's character, who is like you know a very uppity one percenter uh, of the 1912s, who is like hoity-toity, more mid-Atlantic antics, and I'm Billy Zane, and he's just so he he plays up the 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 ridiculousness of that character so well. Billy Zane, underrated actor. He's it's great wonderful. in this. He's just it's so good. I'm, hamming it up. They are. Yeah, and so was Kathy Bates. I love oh my Kathy God. Bates. Kathy Bates is, I think, my favorite supporting character, like supporting role, like player in this movie. Yes. yes. I learned how to eat with um, fancy silverware from her. Yeah. <laughs> See, there you go. There you go. Um, and I think Leo and Kate are also great. I have somewhat controversial opinions on them, as my girlfriend Philippa might tell you, in that I think Leo as an adult is kind of the worst, and that uh, she is, like, way too good for him. And anyone who still, like, ships them, I'm just like, really? He's a grown-ass man who has a fucking pussy posse. Like, don't get me started. I kind of hate Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, That's fair. And I also think that he missed his chance. And now he's just kind of spiraling after uh, well, lo- and- losing the, the one who could have been, which is Kate Winslet. Really? Yeah, no, she was always too good for him. Like That's always. also true. I think she's also um, like way too good for him because she's perfect and I love her. Yeah, exactly. And he is still a grown-ass man who dates like 20-year-olds. So, yeah, I have, ugh, I do not like Leonardo DiCaprio, actually. Um, and I think he's aged poorly and I just, I have feelings about Leo. However, they are great in this movie. And everyone always talks about like the more iconic scenes, like the dancing or the, when they're at like the stern of the ship or the bow, whatever they're at. Or, um, you know, when they have sex in the car. But, like, my favorite scenes with them are, like, the ones where they're getting to know each other and they're just walking along the deck of the ship and, like, he teaches her how to spit and she learns that he's an artist and she asks about some of the art in his book and he tells her about the women and the people that he's met on his travel that he's, like, drawn and how much he loves to draw hands. And those are the moments I really love between them in the movie. Yeah. Um, And... Like, again, I just, I can recall all these moments so vividly in my mind. Um, two more things real quick. One, fun fact, when I was a child, the scene where Rose almost throws herself off the ship, like, traumatized me. For a very specific reason, when Jack tells her that falling off would feel like hitting a thousand knives, I carried that with me throughout my entire childhood and I was like one day I'm gonna be on a ship and I'm gonna fall off and I'm gonna feel these thousand knives it was like you know how there's that thing about like how cartoons like 
like made us think that we would run into like quicksand all the time yes this movie was that for me i was convinced that That you would be on a boat and fall off on a boat and fall off and i would hit a thousand knives like it scarred me oh gosh and i have never forgotten like hearing that for the first time as a child and being like oh my god a thousand knives (laughs) um and so i still hold that with me um and one more thing there's a third option with the door at the end of the film. Oh. Don't talk about. We're not and, We're not going to litigate that again, are we? And we're going to litigate it. Oh, God. At Gosh. some point. Either now or later in the episode when we get to, like, other things. Or if you want to do it now and get it out of the way, I am happy to. Because it's a very simple third option. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know what it is? What is they it? They both. They both are not on the on the door? They both die together? No. <laughs> no. It doesn't fucking matter because that's not the story the movie is telling. It does not matter whether or not he would have fit on the door. It literally could not matter less. But Anya, there are nerds on the internet who need to litigate that a a door can hold the weight of two people or not. They did a Mythbusters episode about it. I don't care. They, they sh- we should never have a Mythbus episode. We should never debate this because it doesn't matter. And I actually, this actually bothers me so much because, like, focusing on that rather than on the story and the fact that it's just showing that Jack as a character is willing to sacrifice himself for Rose and the fact that, like, they're not supposed to have this happily ever after and that, like, the class divide is too great and blah, blah, blah. All these thematic elements in the story. That's supposed is what's to be about important. her becoming, freeing and herself so, from social constraints and becoming a, an independent I woman. See. I hate the debate so much. And it's like another Leo movie, The End of Inception, which again, it does, not, it does not matter if it's a dream or reality. It doesn't matter because it's reality to Cobb. And that is what matters. And people are bad at stories. It's like, it's like taking the logic, like the whole um, phenomenon of trying to explain end, ends of movies, like those are, you know, articles being like explaining the end of et cetera. It's like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of it all, right? Mm-hmm. When you try to like, adding bring a, a pedantic to approach it. to something that isn't supposed to be like black or white. It's about the whole greater, right? Like not picture. like the, the thing about cinema and film and storytelling is that there's poetry and you know dream logic and like and poetry. Not to say that this is like flowery language and everything, but like that not everything is it's not real cinema isn't realism unless it's supposed to be like italian neorealism or whatever like you can have these stories that may have she they may have both been able to be on the door or not like you said it doesn't matter what matters is the story that they're telling and not well you know scientifically there's enough wood on there for the buoyancy to be both like it doesn't matter like we don't need to have cinema sins going in and and looking at the movies and saying like well this is cinema you know, has ruined um movies not movies but like people's Movie people's ability to um watch movies what's the word i'm thinking of i can't it's like something no well i think okay with this idea of like cinema sins or like the Mythbusters episode with the door mm. i kind of hate that these things even exist because what they do is they allow these thoughts to be entertained when right. these thoughts are like climate denial. Yeah. <laughs> to like a less extreme, but yes, but it's like, right. Like these ideas, this argument about like the door, like 
it takes away from the movie for me. And I'm just like, like we shouldn't even be having this conversation. The fact that we're even entertaining it, like that's you're not it's at like, this point you're just disrespecting titanic my, and that my is biggest not acceptable pet, one of the my biggest pet peeves when talking about movies with anyone is when they fall back on the plot hole argument yeah. and they're like that movie wasn't good there are plot holes and okay what are those plot holes per se did they actually play did they actually like affect the overall narrative of the movie did they affect your enjoyment of the movie are you just saying that because you have nothing interesting or um compelling to say about this movie right like for example the dark knight rises has quote-unquote plot holes in it how does bruce wayne get back to a a locked down gotham well it doesn't matter because he's bruce wayne and he's batman he could do that and i think that there's certain elements of movies where you know they may have skipped over something that logically if you look at point a to point b doesn't make sense but cinema is not supposed to be literal you know it's it's supposed to be a story which is not real life so i think that when people it's not cutting corners to sit you know to, to have bruce wayne get back into gotham or to have rose only be the one on the door because that's not the story they're telling. They're not telling the story of how Bruce Wayne gets back into Gotham. They're telling the story about how he, uh, you know, f- frees Gotham from Bane. It, it, uh, James Cameron is telling the story of, of a woman who loses a great love of her life and has to leave, lead on, uh, like, l- like keep on living to, to keep that promise that Jack yeah. had her made. To, finally, to, like, never, finally begin never let living. Go of, yeah, finally begin living and never let go of the 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 moments that they had on the ship to you know yeah so like at the end of the movie when she's dreaming and possibly you know the you know could have could could have died in her sleep she dreams of going back to titanic and seeing jack again and you know all the people who lost their lives on the ship and they're she's in sort of her own sort of inception dream world where that's the reality for her and it doesn't matter that she you know jack could have been on the door jack's real in her mind exactly it's because she goes back to titanic because she's fulfilled that promise finally to jack to live to take a take life live life to the fullest essentially because up until then she had been trapped by social pressures and by her own just kind of um fate that had been designated for her and in meeting jack and in surviving the titanic she had finally learned how to finally live as fully as jack had she taught her became, how to yeah she became free mm-hmm. like she finally found freedom and yes. like agency in her own life and like you see it in the decision she makes to jump off the lifeboat another line that i can hear so perfectly in my head when jack is just like you're so stupid rose <laughs> and he just like yells at her about how stupid it was he's so he's saying that while he's kissing her and he's like you're so stupid i, know. I, love, <laughs> I love that so, i love, I love that like whole scene, that whole scene, that just delivery, the I, performance, so it's good. So perfect. Anyways, it's so perfect. I just want to say, Anya, I will designate you the number one Titanic fan of this yes. podcast because you love it in spite of James Cameron and you love it in spite of Leo, and because of True. everything you said. True. Two men that I have very controversial, not controversial with James Cameron, but two men that I don't love. Mm-hmm. Right, but it it's still the, really works for me. The uh. The, the movie is greater than the sum of its parts yeah. for you. I think 
I think what it is, is that it's a perfect movie to be swept away by. Mm. And that's why I love it so much is that it really is so grand and larger than life and melodramatic and you just get so caught up in it. And it's really interesting. Um, I was actually talking with Philippa about this movie and about how uh, Shakespeare in Love, my favorite movie of all time, and it's Best Picture win, is the more controversial version of Titanic. Because Shakespeare in Love is just a straight-up historical, like, period romance. Mm-hmm. And it is the same melodrama and like grandiosity and you know sweeping away into this like other world however the thing about Shakespeare in Love is that it doesn't have the sort of like male elements that Titanic has in that Titanic starts in the present as like some scientific expedition Mm. and at the end becomes this like you know dramatic disaster movie and there's action and adventure and it's interesting to me that these movies are actually very similar, but Titanic is uh, remembered much better because it is sort of less gendered and kind of less inherently female. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to point that out because yeah. I can definitely I think see that. I think that like the reason Titanic is so successful because it appeals to all demographics. It's it appeals to women, it appeals to families even because of just like the spectacle of it all. And of course it appeals to men because of the action um, parts of it. So it really is just like it hits all those marks in a way that could feel very targeted, but just feels so part of that whole escapist, grandiose element of it. And I feel like it's like very cinematic in the old classic Hollywood sense too especially in the melodrama that it evokes and even in like the Hell really yeah. bad script that it has melodrama. I think, yeah and I think that like even the really bad script that you're talking about Anya it's just such cheesy sentimental dialogue that reminds me almost of, of the ways that like you know classic Hollywood dialogue can be very cheesy and sentimental but I feel like it I, I really like the script actually even though it is bad no I completely I think the thing I think the thing about the script being bad where I'm coming from with that is that James Cameron is not smart enough to have created this movie with the melodrama and the sort of stuff in mind. Like, I think he came at it from a very earnest perspective, which is great. Mm-hmm. But, like, he wrote the script with very serious intentions. And the melodrama was sort of a byproduct and not something he was intending to do. And while I love the melodrama, and I think that makes this movie even, like, greater, I think it's a bad script only because it's clear that the intention uh, was different than the outcome. And even though the outcome is great, you it, you can see that, like, I don't think James Cameron meant it to be as melodramatic as it ended up being. I think because his dialogue is very, like, uh, not direct, but also, like, uh, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to come up with a word. Uh, it's not flowery language. It's not Sorkin. It's not sort of like, it's not something you would read as a book. Like, I think it's very by the book dialogue in terms of like getting characters to say the things that he needs to say to have the scenes progress, like didactic or scientific. It's very scientific dialogue for a very romantic movie. Um, and so I think that the dialogue, and but because the actors sell cheesy lines so well, like, 
or like even like straight up like direct like when whenever the captain whenever Theoden King of Rohan is on screen and he's saying things like take it to see Mr. Murdoch and James Horner's score starts blaring like even though he's just saying take it to see Mr. Murdoch like you sort of get chills mm -hmm. because the, the movie the 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 basic dialogue i guess that's the word i'm really going for the basic dialogue of this movie is supported by amazing visual and and audio audible storytelling uh from the script to the uh sorry from the uh uh cinematography to the visual effects to the score to the sounds of the ship like it all sort of works together to create something so that like if the if the if the rest of the movie was not as good as it is, I think people would talk about the dialogue being as cheesy and basic as it, as I mean, obviously now with more conversations as we as we get more anniversaries of the of the movie, people sort of bring that up more. But I think that you know it's okay for a a movie to have sort of like not great dialogue, kind of like hokey like, dialogue hokey like let's be real star wars doesn't have the greatest script and a lot of its best dialogue comes from improvised improvised lines from harrison ford and carrie fisher like uh the the that's i mean that's why you, when you, the prequels we you know that dialogue is bad and it's because george lucas Genuinely. is not a writer so bad it's so bad and like going back to our clone wars talk like we have the same story being told from dave filoni in clone wars and like he is putting the weight and emphasis of the tragedy of the of the fall of Anakin Skywalker, m supplementing the Revenge of the Sith novel. So, like, you could have, you know, multiple authors take a take a, a, a take a whack at a, at the same story, and you get completely different outcomes because of the way it's written. So, I think with Titanic, James Cameron didn't really probably give a shit about the dialogue. It was probably more about, you know, how do I get how do I have these scenes play out the way they need to play out? And he probably used the dialogue as a means to execute that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I could definitely see him sort of creating this whole story as a means to get to the spectacle at the end and the real groundbreaking uh, visual effects that still hold up today. And it's kind of astonishing just watching this again, how much all the practical and visual effects just all gel together and become this huge, um, I've been saying spectacle a lot, but really is a spectacle. And it just, um, it works so well and it looks so good. And I'm just kind of, I'm still really amazed. I'm, I'm sure that Avatar uh, will not age as well visually. Um, and effects wise, but man, Titanic looks so good. And I mean, you can need feel... to return to Pandora and see how those effects <laughs> yeah. uh, look 10 years yeah, later. I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Titanic reminds me of kind of the Lord of the Rings movies in that way, and that like they were made, you know, decades ago and they use mostly practical effects and they really hold up. Mm. Like, Titanic was made before the Star Wars prequels. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was coming out around the same time or a little bit before. Um, they're being made and, at the same time yeah yeah and the star wars prequels look like 10 times more awful than both of these massive projects and it's like they really hold up yeah um it's it's really interesting yeah. because in the late 90s um we get a lot of these big blockbusters that are kind of forced to do workarounds with practical effects because the, the digital effects aren't quite there yet, and yet they are the ones that hold up the best. I'm thinking of Titanic, Jurassic Park, 
and Lord of the Rings, of course. And because, you know, the directors, you know, obviously want to deliver the best product and do that with as much visual effects as possible, but because at that time it wasn't quite there yet, they still have to resort to practical effects, but the blending of it um, that they kind of do almost by accident just works so well. I think that's what makes great movie making is when you're given a series of limitations and work around those limitations because you see what happens when they don't have those limitations anymore. We see what happens when George Lucas has, uh, you know, no, no people saying no to him and all the money in the world and all the, all the uh, computer effects in the world to give, to tell the story he quote unquote wants to tell with the prequels. And you see Peter Jackson doing a very similar thing with the Hobbit movie. I just finished the Hobbit for the first time ever. Um, and I was not expecting the Battle of the Five Armies to be almost off screen the entire, like off book or off page. It's a bad uh, trilogy. I mean, oh, wait, you, you no, you're talking about the book? I'm talking oh, about I, the book. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it happens a, off page. Yeah. I'm, sorry, my, mm-hmm. my, my point wasn't uh, conveyed well. I had seen the movies uh, when they came out. Uh, and then I just now finished reading The Hobbit for the first time. Mm. Uh, and like all the way through, I think I stopped when I was like in fifth grade or whatever. Um, but I saw, I saw how he broke up the book into the movies because I had seen the movies first. And like the first half of the book is the first half of the Hobbit. And then the, 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 the second, like 44% of the book is the desolation of Smaug. And then the last 6% of the Hobbit, because I was reading it on a Kindle, so I sort of was able to break this down scientifically. The last like 6% of the, Hob- of, of the Hobbit, the book, is the Battle of the Five Armies. And I'm just like, how did he, you know, like all the beats of the stories are there. So I was able to follow along with like from the movies to the book. But he just padded it out with so much bloat, so much computer graphics, so much storytelling that was unnecessary. And that and he got away from what made the Lord of the Rings movie so perfect. And I think that's sort of why Avatar, for as much of a critical box office success that movie was, and how visually stunning in 2009 that that movie was, that I'm sure I haven't gone back to Pandora in five years, so I don't know how well it holds up. But I liked the movie at the time. I'm sure I'll have a lot more qualms with it now. Um now that I've actually seen Titanic and like other movies of his that are better and that, and movies that are just generally tell the same story better. Um, and that the effects probably don't hold up as well because you see movies like, um, I'm trying to think of, Oh, rise of the planet of the apes had incredible visual effects for 2011. And then three years later, dawn of the planet of the apes come out and the, the effects are so much crisper and cleaner and better andy circus again he's doing he does amazing motion capture and then war for the planet of the apes has even better motion capture work there so like and avatar is a primary primarily a motion capture movie there's a lot of that so like going back to that probably is not going to look as good as seeing a motion like thanos from endgame is motion capture and that he like he looks incredible when you watch it like you forget that that's not josh brolin in like makeup so i just think i i guess my my point's getting lost here but i uh, i think that the practicality and the limitations of filmmaking create better stories i think ultimately we're, we see that yeah, unless you know how to agree. use the same unless you know how to use modern technology and use it well like 
I'd say Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. It does a really good job with the technology that it's given. There's that great Patrick Willems um, video essay about, uh, oh, um, who's he talking about? Um, the, the director of uh, Back to the Future, who I'm like blanking oh. on. Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, that's there incredible. you go. Yeah. That's an incredible great uh, video essay about video Robert Zemeckis essay. and his in his toys, and I think that um, a lot of directors nowadays, because of just the limitless capacity of digital effects and computer technology, have taken to filmmaking as you know a grand toy box essentially, and it's become less about the storytelling as it is about the technologies. Um, you know, we're seeing with Peter Jackson and a lot of um, legend, legacy filmmakers who have, you know, already made their mark and are just kind of so excited by these new technologies that they're just getting swept up in it and not really paying attention to the story anymore. And I feel like James Cameron was already on that route long ago because he's always all, all about technology, but um, he managed to keep it somewhat grounded in story like you see with Titanic and even a little bit in, Ava in Avatar. Um, but, you know, with the Avatar sequels, it's very obvious that he's very much all about that technology and that underwater CG technology and stuff. So we'll see if that if he's still able to maintain that balance. But um, it is kind of it's just uh, it's interesting how the industry is changing so much because of these advances in technologies that filmmakers are just kind of becoming very caught up in in those uh, the toys. And you see also with Marvel movies and like superhero movies that because they can shoot anywhere and replace it with anything in the, in the background, you know, a lot of these movies are filmed in Atlanta, replace it for London or something else. So like, and Patrick Williams also has a, a great video essay on like the, 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 the look of Marvel movies where like all, like the sky in all these movies is just like a gray and like a, like you don't you never get blue sky with clouds or anything because it's all fake because they want to they want to be able to control every aspect of the movie which is why i think a very specific moment in spider-man far from home really sticks out to me is when they're in venice and they're on the boats and it's like you you can tell that they filmed it there on like on actual location and the and spider-man far from home looks a lot better than other marvel movies because there's actual like camera work being put into it mm-hmm so I feel like we've gotten a little away from Titanic, but I really like this conversation I, I wanted, about it. I want to bring it back in a way that relates to this, um, mm -hmm. because I kept thinking while you guys were talking and like uh, you brought up the Avatar sequels and how they're really just a vehicle for James Cameron to play with technology. And like it's not coming from like a very like sincere storytelling point of view. And that's one thing about Titanic that like really astonishes me and what I part of why I really love it as much as I hate James Cameron, um, the fact that he chose to make his Titanic movie a fictional love story rather than just a disaster film, you know, just something, you know, especially having like, you know, the Terminator and like aliens and stuff. And like, we've seen Avatar, like I'm almost surprised that Titanic is a James Cameron film because the main through line is a romance and it's like a very tender and like awe-inspiring and life-changing romance when it didn't need to be. He could have just told like a real story or just told like a bad disaster movie. But instead he made it about these two people finding each other on this massive ship and their souls connecting. And 
there's also the element of class to it, which I actually really love in Titanic. I think that class exploration is done really well, especially when you get to the end and you realize that like the poor people on the ship can't get on lifeboats yeah. and um, things like that. So I it's just like sort the of fact. Oh, yeah, I was, I was just gonna say like it's sort. Of, I I rewatched it this weekend for this for this conversation, and I was noticing like the the cuts between the third deck and third third class like losing their minds because the gates are locked and then you have first class going oh has there been a, a stop of the engine mm-hmm. well what's all this then yeah and you have yeah. like you have you know they're like oh can we go back to our tea and then you have like people who are like dying yeah. and you, you right. just and like I, it's just sort of incredible especially in these crazy pandemic times it, um to watch like both the the underclass quote-unquote underclass dying and trying to survive and you have the the, uh, the first class being like oh this this i bumped my head on when the engine stopped like it's sort of incredible the difference in society yeah i think and it's, i um... think oh go ahead yeah i was gonna say like i just want to do a quick comment and i think like um yes you can tell i'm very biased against james cameron because he's not only like he's a bad human um so you know he sucks but I think this also is just proof that he's become a worse filmmaker as he's gone on in his career. Like, I think going from something this earnest and this kind of grand and, you know, with some human elements to it and, like, seeing what he's done since, like, it just doesn't make me sad because, again, I don't like him, but it just, it you just realize that, like, he has really become a bad filmmaker since yeah. this time it is a little sad but yeah i just want to say that the the class elements of the movie um are even like stronger uh watching it again now because it's something that you kind of you you see and appreciate when you watch it the first time but here it's just kind of um it becomes even more powerful and potent those elements and um while the romance makes the movie universal i think the class elements make it just so much more timely and sharp sharper than it really needs to be because it just it just brings a whole new layer to this movie that could just be a romance and a Which disaster sucks movie because it's but a movie it, about something that happened 100 years ago so you'd think we'd be beyond that but yeah nope I mean, that's also, too, why I kind of compared it to to Parasite in terms of, like, great blockbusters that entertain but also educate. It really it gives you a lot more than you really expect. It's just the tip of the iceberg, you would say. Anya, we've both made those puns now. You have to find a, a way to fit, fit it in so that we can perfect the trifecta. Yeah. And I also, no. I also just want to add that um, maybe it's also just a product of the melodrama of it, too, because melodramas um, often tackle those issues of class uh division class um uh anxieties as well so i think that's just a really just great what makes titanic great it makes it yes and despite the fact that we talked about how this movie is someone that appeals to like or something that appeals to all audiences and like that's why it can be more well regarded than like something like shakespeare in love it's interesting because the things the elements we're talking about if we're looking beyond like the effects and stuff like this melodrama melodrama is often associated with like female oriented mm-hmm. media and art and you know a romance and ideas of like of class division and things like that it just it feels like the elements of this movie that 
we regard the best these days and the ones that have made the most impression impression upon us are the ones that are a bit more female coded. Yeah. And that's part of why I love Titanic. Yeah. So we actually have uh, kind of departed from our usual millennial movie review uh, structure, but I think we really just had a covered everything that um, we yeah. want to talk about Titanic uh, and had a great conversation. I really Ooh, like this. I have a, I have a question for you guys. Sure. So out of the, out of the supporting cast, so exclude Kate and Leo as like options, who's your favorite supporting character? Kathy, Kathy Bates, but also Victor Garber. Kathy Bates, Victor Garber, but also Billy Zane. I don't know if I can choose just one Willoughby. That's really hard. Okay. I'll, that, I'm going to choose Victor Garber because I think that his quiet stoicism uh, is incredible and he needs to be – Does he doesn't have an Oscar, does he? He needs one if he does. He does. He does? I'm sure he has, no, I'm, I'm sure he, he does need one. Sorry. He does is what I meant to say. I was, I was agreeing so with you. Good. I love uh, but he's like, Garber. I wish I built you a stronger ship, Miss Rose. I'm like, oh, God, Victor Garber. When he goes down with his ship too, I was – it was just so tragic. I love it. I, listen, I You care so much about all these characters, even if they are awful. It's just, uh, it's amazing character. Character work, not character writing, I guess, but more character work in general. You also got to give it up to uh, Yoan Griffith at the end when he's like, turn the boat around. I was uh, going to bring him up. I was like, baby Yoan. Yeah, making really. Before uh, we like, ever knew who he himself. really was. Yeah, stealing the scene in that like one scene that he has. I know. He is memorable in that scene. It's why he's been given 13 ABC pilots that don't go anywhere. <laughs> Poor Yoan. I mean, he's, his greatest role has always been Horatio Hornblower. Horatio Hornblower uh, is fantastic. He is so good in that role, and that is, like, his most iconic role, I agree. Um, it's, it's a shame. That he has, yeah, it's unfortunate that he hasn't sort of peaked in the 90s. <laughs> and, to be, to be fair, side tangent, Fantastic Four movies might not be great, Yoan Griffith is a perfect Reed Richards. He's, He's very so good at Reed Richards. Yeah. I actually like all of the cast in the Fantastic Four movies. I uh, think Jesse Albuquerque is great. Chris Evans is great. I can't remember the name of the Michael actor. Michael Chiklis. Yes. Michael Chiklis. I was literally just talking to my roommate about these and defending these movies and that, like, yes, they are, like, cheesy 2000s, like, sort of bad superhero movies. But, like, yeah. I don't care because those movies actually capture what the Fantastic Four is to me, which is just like a fun family, like space romp. Like there's like, it's a family unit and they're cheesy and they're scientists and they get powers. Like it's not much more complicated than that. So I actually love the Fantastic Four movies. You heard it here first. Yeah. It's always funny when people are like Chris Evans d departure for Knives Out. I'm like, no, this is his character from, this is Johnny Storm. I know he's just playing just all the douches that he played when he was um, a young twenty-something because he, he was always cast as right. like the douche, yeah. right? He this is weird revisionist history. Or Captain America, like mm -hmm. Captain America was the departure, right? Captain America. I didn't think he could do Captain America before I saw Cap the movie because I was, and then I, I was because I was like the asshole from all these movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> I think that wraps our first discussion about Titanic. <laughs> I can't remember, remember why things. we were talking about this. But yeah, great discussion about Titanic, guys. Um, I was going to oh, try to think of another pun, but I can't remember. I can't think of any right now. Well, I guess we're just I... going to have to steer us into another segment. Yeah, you know. I was going to finally say a pun. But... Oh, no. Oh, no. Please, please say do. it, Anya. Please. Please, please do. You did it. You, you already did it. No. Oh. Okay. 
on your last chance. You can say it now. I think that Titanic is a real gem. Is that a pun? Oh, wait. It's it's a reference. Yeah. I hate puns. <laughs> <laughs> like the lowest form of comedy. Good thing you're on a podcast with us then. Yeah, because you guys can do it for me and then I can groan every time I hear them. Um, or I was going to be like, Titanic rocks. Oh no, I, that's even worse. <laughs> I, I don't like puns, you guys. All right, all right. We won't, we won't subject you or our listeners to any more of Anya's puns. Um, Anya's puns. Ours are still up Ours are great. <laughs> ours are just, um, ours are rocking, as you would say, Anya. <laughs> <laughs> You made a fun out of her fun. <laughs> Anyways, let's um let's get this crash landing. I don't know. I'm s i am I can not think of it anymore. Anyways. <laughs> let's let's dock this let's dock, discussion. Yeah. Let's dock this uh discussion and <laughs> um steer to calmer waters. I'm king of the world. <laughs> We're king yes. We're kings of the world now. And let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. Okay, Willoughby, why don't you start us off this week? What do you really like? I have two things, but I'm going to focus on one of them because I know we have a rule. We can't talk about two really likes. But I ta- saw two things that I, I have that I that I like. Um, I watched The Willoughbys, the Lois Lowry adaptation netflix animation animated movie and had an existential crisis by the amount of times that they used my name how they used my name and like what that did to my psyche because i have a traditionally unique name it is not in media most of the time unless you're Um, a jane austen novel unless i'm in a jane austen novel or the one character from everybody wants some or that's it (laughs) check marks are there and so this movie is really fun like the animation is incredible uh and i think that it does i've never read the book but i like it it seems like a fun like story to, that they that they told and i think they told it well and that the all the voice acting is great um it just sort of threw me uh i sort of spiraled by the amount of times that they used my name because it just doesn't happen um so that's i just want to like put that on the record on the podcast I've seen the Willoughby's, uh, and I liked it, um, but it, I'm changed as a person. Um, I really wish I could have experienced this. I know. My girlfriend and I were talking about how we wish we did, like, a watch party, because it would have just been, like, the most insane thing. It's like, Watching Willoughby's um, brain just, uh, yeah. does not compute. Yeah, because, like, my name just doesn't get said on te- in television and movies. It just doesn't really, like, yeah. Um... But I really want to focus on Alex Garland's television show for FX mm. called Devs. Um, it is his follow-up to Annihilation. Uh, and it is not a sequel to Annihilation, but it is just his next work. Um, and it's, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the best way I could describe it is what I tweeted was that this very much is an Alex Garland m- moody piece on uh, science and humanity. And, co- and like, it, but it's also very beautiful, um, well acted. Uh, and I could definitely see how this could have been a movie. Uh, cause there's a sort of, sort of a lot of like padding of the plot. There's like the plots, not very 
complicated or or twisting. Um, you, you're sort of given everything up front, which sort of is, is sort of a magic trick that the that the show plays with you because it's sort of it's a murder mystery, but they show you who did it at at, at the beginning, and so you're just sort of being told how like how the how the characters are finding out about this mystery and also the larger mystery of what devs in the universe is um which is this uh development team that nick offerman's silicon valley ca uh character like established they're doing like spooky things with quantum computing um and so like, if you've ever seen ex machina it's very much in the same vein where it's like have humans gone too far with technology and like what does it mean for the nature of humanity and science and all that and a lot of there's a lot of talk of determinism versus free will which is sort of an insane thing to see on television because oh. it's very much a thing that like doesn't really get it's not really a theme in movies which is like what if we just don't have free will and everything is on train lines and you're no matter what we can do we, we don't have choices in the world like the choices have been predetermined for us and sort of that existential dread that's, that's sort one of what of my the show favorite is themes a, yeah it's what this show is about like definitively it's about that uh, but it's also about familial loss and about trying to recover that loss, uh, specifically with Nick Offerman's character. Um, it's a very emotional story, but it, and it's also, but it's also a really good science fiction story. It's sort of like it's not pulpy, uh, but it is really visually st uh, stunning, and the, like the way that they are, they they've sort of tried to visualize quantum computing in a way that is actually you know probably not realistic at all but it looks really cool you know it's sort of like with ex machina like the brain that that uh oscar isaac creates to make an ai like it looks like it doesn't look like anything you know that we that we have technologically speaking so it's very uh interesting uh it's called devs nick offerman stars in it uh and it's I think it's, you know, a phenomenal television show, and I'm glad that it's on. Uh, it's available to watch on Hulu. It also stars um, Sonoya Mizuno, who okay, yeah, appeared that, uh, in uh, Annihilation as the body double. Uh, well, not the body double, like the, the double doppelganger um, mm. that dance fights with Natalie Portman at the end, and okay. is also the Japanese, the Asian robot in Ex Machina. Yes. So it's her third right. project with um, Alex Garland, and she finally gets She's phenomenal in the story. I need to check it out. I've been like, everything I hear about it just feels like it's very up my alley. So I, yeah, I, need, I really definitely want to check, check it out. out. Yeah. It's only eight episodes, and they're, you know, 45-minute episodes. So it's definitely something you could watch in a weekend mm -hmm. or, like, you know, take, take a couple days to watch it. Um, it does sort of, like, I don't know how existential you get with this these kind of stories but it is sort of like you sort of have to be in the it's like any alex garland piece you sort of have to be in the the right mindset to watch we're yeah. like i can't just throw on ex machina hearing you hearing you talk about it i just started thinking about maniac um and how that is still one of the most underrated netflix series of all time because i good. still yeah. i love that show but hearing you talk about devs made me think of like the way the what like maniac made me feel and reflect on and so that sounds really good. Yeah. All right. Anya, what is your really like this week? I did not prepare a really like because life is life what it that. is right now. And I can't, I, I don't know. It's hard to like think about just like consuming new things, even though we are, I don't know. It's weird. You can um, repeat a really like that you were like, that's still ongoing or something. 
I mean, yeah, like, talk I'm about still... your favorite E24 movie that you've watched recently. Um, well, Ex Machina. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We finally got to Ex Machina, and it's a perfect film. Um, I was going to say, I'm still really enjoying Run. Um, I think it's probably one of the best new shows um, that's airing right now. And Donald Gleason and uh, Merritt Weaver are phenomenal. Um, I think I'm really liking things that I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm sure we will talk about this next week. But I am not emotionally prepared for more Parks and Rec. I'm oh, like, yeah. I am. That's going to kill us. Oh, my God. I, I cried when I heard the news. I can't even imagine what watching it's going to be like. That might be our episode next week, guys. Spoiler alert. Um, and I'm still really enjoying the accessibility of theater right now. Um, tonight, there's going to be a concert for uh, Stephen Sondheim's 90th birthday. And it's going to be starring a lot of Broadway people and Hollywood people. Meryl Streep is going to perform because um, she was in Into the Woods. And I'm really excited for that. And they're releasing more plays to be streamed, including the Frankenstein that Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch did, where they alternated roles between Oh, I've seen trailers for Fathom Events for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I um, see that finally. I meant to go see it in theaters, and then I missed it. Um, so they're putting both versions up to stream for a week. Um, they're also putting up Ray Fiennes' uh, Antony and Cleopatra, which I did see in theaters, and it's really good. Uh, of course I did. Um, and I'll probably watch it again. Um, so I'm just still really enjoying the accessibility of theater right now. And it honestly amazes me. One thing, I guess one thing I like less is that this is possible and it's showing that it's possible to make theater more accessible. And the fact that we just don't do this normally and we make theater an inherently inaccessible medium really angers me. Yep. Um, and so I hope we can learn from this and keep making it more accessible it, it sort um, of it, it sort of reminds me and and you know all these things are, are varying degrees of of classism and whatnot but like when olive gardens company the company that in, in charge of like all those restaurants was like yeah we're gonna give all of our employees paid sick leave now um <laughs> because of the pandemic and you're like yeah i was like you could have been doing that for years now yeah so like it's just the pandemic is sort of uh I, I believe the expression is putting a black light in the hotel room uh, over under America uh, and just sort of seeing like all the things that could be changed. And, you know, in obviously theater and paid sick leave are complete are very different, but like just sort of like showing that thing, the things that we want to happen can happen. It's the systems in place that are not allowing that. And now we're going on a whole different tangent, uh <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but very um, important to talk about still. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that was my sort of really like. Um, HT, what is your really like? So my really like is something I can't talk about in de detail quite yet because it's a screener for an upcoming Netflix film um, that I think actually you will really like, Anya, once it comes out. It's the uh, teenage romance or like rom-com, The Half of It, directed by Alice Wu. And I saw the screener for it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, social embargoes, social reviews are embargoed till Tuesday, I think. But I'm going to give like a short, little spiel about it. It is about a young Chinese American teenager living in this sort of sleepy midwestern town, and she's the only Chinese person in her whole school and in the whole town, really, except for her dad. Um, 
and she makes her money, makes extra money by uh, writing essays and selling them to her classmates uh, who pay her through a kind of Venmo-ish sort of app. And she does that to uh, make extra bank for her dad, who is pretty low income and runs like the local railway sort of station. And um, at one point, uh, a sweet bumbling jock asks her to write a love letter to the popular beautiful girl in school and she ends up falling in love with the popular girl but it's actually it's sort of a lgbt twist on serrano de bergerac but it's way way better than sierra burgess just like much better and well that's a low bar <laughs> it's a very low bar. Burgess is a transphobic terrible movie it is really bad um but i was very pleasantly surprised by how much i liked the half of it which delves more into sort of the um economic kind of it has it gives a more sort of sundance dark sundance drama vibe to it it reminded me a little bit of the edge of 17 in the depiction of the protagonist and her sort of flaws and own st- kind of internal struggles and it has a really uh, nice depiction of platonic soulmates that I really really enjoy and it's yeah it's a really it's a nice it's really nice really sweet uh, sort of somewhat has like a little bit of an edge to it uh, teen rom-com and I think that you'll especially really like it Anya and I think you'll love it too Willoughby so I'm so excited for this movie, and I have been. So I'm so glad to hear that you liked it. Yeah. That makes me really happy. I'm excited for you guys to see it. And it comes on Netflix on... I should have looked this up beforehand. Um, It's okay. It comes on Netflix on May 1st. So look forward to that. Which is this week. Yeah. Very exciting. Because time is a flat circle. Indeed it is. Um, But that is our episode for... uh, yet another week in quarantine. If you guys have any thoughts on Titanic or other, you know, kind of older great classics that you guys have revisited during quarantine, come chat with us about those or anything that you've been enjoying, such as the Willoughby's or devs, um, things you're looking forward to, like the half of it on Netflix or just anything else, come talk with us about any and all of it. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you if you search for us there, we're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. And you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at HTrendBui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye!